Hello, ladies and gents, Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Brad Marshall on the line. He is the brains behind Fire in a Bottle. He is also the founder of the Croissant Diet. He has got a lot of very, very interesting theories that I have taken a keen interest in lately because I've been diving deep into steric acid and all that it entails because it is the primary ingredient in the keto bricks. So, rewind a little bit here. How different types of fats affect your body from a fat oxidation standpoint is incredibly important. We dive into the biochemistry behind what his theory is in that regard, how linoleic acid could be very, very bad, how steric acid could be very, very good, and some of these different factors at play. We talk about the linoleic acid in the meats that we are eating. We talk about all kinds of things. We talk about we talk about too much to mention this intro, but I've got so many questions still after this after this discussion. I'm gonna have to do a follow up round two without a doubt because this rabbit hole goes incredibly deep. But I feel like we did a really good job scratching the surface from a high level view in introducing this topic and this theory of how you can further improve your endeavors of losing body fats and just creating more uh, free fatty acid to, as an energy source to tap into. So. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I learned a ton. I have no doubt that you will as well. We did dive into the weeds, so buckle up on this one. Take some notes and get ready for round two. But until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Brad Marshall. And Brad, we are live. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Um... Yeah, it's it's a busy day, busy week, but uh, I feel great. Busy's good. Busy's good. Um, so I, I've made a mistake, to be honest with you. I typically and intentionally do not really research guests that I bring on so that I can just start with a very blank, clear slate and then learn as they speak. But I, I couldn't I couldn't help myself. I, tempted, I was tempted, and I, I started diving into some of your content, and I realized I made a massive mistake because I, I got deep enough to just be dangerous. Um, so, so this is probably going to be uh, like your website alone is you cannot possibly begin to cover that in a one hour podcast. So we may have to, we may have to do a two part series here, but I'd love to kind of start off with some, some foundational background on you and what got you into this space in the first place. Sure. Um, it's kind of a funny story that comes from a couple different angles. Um, so I started off as a, uh, as a, molecular biologist i got a, a degree from cornell in genetics and after that i went to um memorial sloan kettering cancer center and i was working for the berkeley drosophila genome project um as a you know in my early 20s and but i've also really loved uh i've always really loved food mm -hmm. and cooking and i was living in manhattan and i was living in san francisco um and i'm a country boy i grew up in rural upstate new york and but being in the city and seeing these like vibrant farmers markets um really kind of like i was like this is i was like this was cool you know this um that that whole scene i was i was really into and and so while i was in new york i ended up going to the french culinary institute and i got a culinary background um and at some point in my life i was well we were living out in san francisco um really in el sobrante at the time uh, which is north of berkeley and <laughs> this is in the early days of craigslist this is when craigslist was only in san francisco um my my girlfriend at the time 
uh, who later became my wife, um, she said, isn't this funny? Somebody selling a whole hog on, on Craigslist. And I was like, oh, that is funny, you know, and I kind of laughed it off, but it kind of percolated there in the back of my mind for a couple of days. And I was like, I'm going to go see if that's still there. And I looked it up and sure enough, it was still there. And I bought this whole uh, live hog from this farm. And I wound up, I, I worked with a butcher, had it cut up and wound up like making like um, liver pate. And I did dry cured uh, prosciutto and dry cured bacon and all this stuff. And the neighbors thought I had a meth lab in the back because I built this smokehouse out of like a picnic table and like some two by fours and tarps over it. And I had like a big green egg under it, like making smoke. <laughs> it, was a whole, it was a whole scene. And, um, and so that was sort of where I, I kind of got the, the real, the bug around, around pork specifically. So we ended up moving back to upstate New York, um, in Trumansburg, which is just outside of Ithaca where I went to school at Cornell. So it was kind of a homecoming and, um, and we bought, uh, about 70 acres and started, uh, you know, farming and tried out a bunch of different things. You know, at one point I was going to make hard cider, but, uh, then I got these three piglets and I just, I fell in love with them. They were great. And I already, you know, had the bug to kind of season and cook with pork. And so, you know, we started this, um, like a little butcher shop in the basement of our house and started selling at the, at the, the farmer's market and like everybody loved it. It was, it was, it was such a popular idea, the idea that we were, you know, raising these pigs and, and making, um, you know, liver pate every week and making these really fresh handmade sausages, different fun, you know, like jalapeno cheddar sausage, you know, just different mm-hmm. things that, um, we did a sliced deli ham that was super popular. Um, did you ever make the so, blood sausage? Uh, you know, blood sausage is something that we love and have always wanted to make. But the problem is, and this is a big problem for farms in general, is the USDA butcher shops, none of them are um, have the right paperwork, basically, uh. to collect the blood. Um you know, the USDA wants certain testing and it's like, a, it's a whole process. And so nobody wants to do it. Um, gotcha. This is a problem for the whole industry in general, honestly, is the kind of like lack of, of access to slaughter and meat processing. Um, it's a huge problem. Um, there's just, it, it's, it's a problem for farmers who want to scale up their business and be able to provide a more affordable pros- product because you can't, you like can't scale up. There's nowhere to go. It's like you can do your five pigs at a time and then they're out of, they're out of capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a lot more expensive to process on a small scale than it is on a huge scale. You know, the huge slaughterhouses, um, I marvel at their efficiency. I, I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't like the idea of industrial produced pork, but at the same time, those big slaughterhouses can operate just on, um, selling things like the trotters and the ears and the blood and most of that stuff ships to Mexico or it ships to China. Mm-hmm. And so like, basically if I'm, you know, if I'm Tyson meats, my cost to get a pig slaughtered and processed is basically zero. Um, as a small farm, I can spend as much or more on USDA processing as it takes me to raise the animal, you know? So we have this huge, um, economy of scale difference as a small farm, you know, not only from raising small groups of pigs, but the cost of the processing can be 
substantial. Anyway, bit of a tangent. No, that's good, though. <laughs> so, I didn't know any of that, so but, that, that's good. Right, but it's an important tangent. You know, if people want better quality meat, that this is something that we have to be, I think, kind of thinking about as a community because the solution is is very expensive and it's going to take, um, I don't know, it's going to take a lot of people coming together or something to, to start building these more efficient, larger scale, regional slaughterhouses. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But I'm going to get off the soapbox on that for a second. And um, so anyway, um, right. I started raising pigs. We started selling a farmer's market and it was, and it was great. You know, that really took off. Um, and it ultimately grew into a USDA processing facility and, um, and it just, it was it was fun and it was cool. You know, we were doing a, a nose to tail restaurant um, in Ithaca from pigs that are all raised here at Trumansburg, and like it was the number one rated restaurant on Yelp in Ithaca for like three years. Everybody loved it, um, and so you know that was a few years back. And now, so I'm not I'm not actually doing that anymore. Um, it was very financially challenging the whole time to do that, and so I'm trying to do more saying well. I shouldn't say that. I did just come out with a croissant diet, so I'm, it's not really a more <laughs> sane life. But um, <laughs> anyway, so but uh, so and I had done keto. You know, I've struggled with uh, obesity my whole life. I've mm -hmm. always been overweight, even as a you know an eight year old, right? And and most people in my family have uh, as well. And so, um, you know, as as a person in my twenties, I've read the Dr. Atkins book in like 2002 and started, you know, quote, doing Atkins before people called it keto. Mm -hmm. And, and that was great. You know, I lost a ton of weight. Um, it was very successful for me back then. And then, um, you know, but running the butcher shop and the restaurant and the farm, you know, I just kind of got, you know, there was just no time for self care. It was like around the clock, just go, go, go all the time. And, um, you know, and then you fall into the trap of eating restaurant food and, and, you know, people bring in cakes and cookies, you know, and potato chips and you end up snacking. And mm -hmm. anyway, by the time I was, uh, you know, the spring of, or I guess January of 2019, I stepped on the scale and realized that I was, you know, tremendously overweight at that point. Um, and so I started to do keto again, but it, it didn't, you know, the weight didn't, come off as fast as it did when I was in my twenties. Um, and so that's when I went, there was a, I promise all these threads are coming together. Um, so no, you're good, <laughs> man. I went and I read, um, the blog hyperlipid by, uh, Peter Dombromowski. I'm sure I pronounce his last name wrong. I'm sure I do every time, but, um, so he has a blog and, like I say, if you just Google the word hyperlipid, it'll come right up. And it's a brilliant blog, and I've always thought it was brilliant, but it's very hard to understand. It's full of jargon. It's like there's no there's no introduction. There's no, you know, there's no like <laughs> uh, shallow end. You just have to dive in mm -hmm. and learn all the jargon if you want to kind of follow along on that story and in that blog. Um, you know, he's a very smart guy, but it's highly technical. And so, you know, as in over the, that winter of 2019, I, I started to go back and really read through 
um, what Peter calls the protons thread, which is kind of the core thread on his blog and, and try to really understand it. And, and it's, it goes into depth about the mitochondria and how mitochondrial dynamics work and, and all this stuff. And we can talk about that later, but, um, but as I read it, um, I kind of started to realize that, you know, what, what he was saying is that the core kind of principle and, and this, this, you know, this is uh, something that's evolved over a decade or more, I think this series of blog articles. And so you can see how it changes over time, but, but what's emerged from it is this idea that, um, that, that saturated fats carry a very specific message and, and that message is really targeted at your, um, especially at your abdominal fat, you know, your visceral fat. Um, when you eat saturated fat, it moves through your bloodstream and it goes to um, most especially your visceral fat. And when your fat cells start burning highly saturated fat, um, they produce what's called what are called reactive oxygen species. And that is essentially a signal to those fat cells uh, that causes them specifically, not your whole body, but those fat cells specifically to not react as strongly as insulin, um, which is another way of saying they become mildly and reversibly insulin resistant while they're metabolizing saturated fat. And what does that mean? Well, one of the main uh, things that insulin does is uh, tells your fat cells to stop doing the process of lipolysis. And lipolysis is when the fat cells are releasing fat for the rest of the body to eat, right? So it's causing your fat cells to essentially unload their cargo for the rest of the body to consume. And so when insulin is, is signaling very strongly, the fat cells stop releasing, they stop releasing fat. Um, Obviously, if you want to lose weight, you want your fat cells to keep releasing fat, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and and so, um, conversely, the opposite of that: if you eat polyunsaturated fats, which are highly unsaturated fats, with those fats, they don't produce the same amount of reactive oxygen species in the fat cells, and the fat cells stay very insulin sensitive. So, if you're eating a lot of polyunsaturated fats, um, then your fat cells are going to say insulin sensitive. And when you eat, they're going to totally shut off. They're going to totally stop releasing fat to fuel the rest of your body. And, you know, three or four hours after you eat a meal, you're going to be hungry because there's no, you know, there's no fuel for the cells, right? Your blood sugars come back down, but now your fat cells are no longer releasing fat for your body to eat. And you're like, you know, this kind of <clears throat> gets at the question that I'd say all the time that I wondered my whole life, like, if I'm fat, why am I so hungry? It doesn't make sense, right? It's not like I have a lack of calories, but, but in physiology, it's like, okay, you have this fat, but how do you get, you know, how do you access it? How do you get at it? And the answer is that you actually want your abdominal fat cells, especially to be, um, a little bit insulin resistant, you know, the rest of your body can be insulin sensitive. That's, that's fine. But those, you know, that targeted what I call, or what Peter calls physiological insulin resistance, 
that's gotten by eating a meal that's very high in saturated fat and very low in polyunsaturated fats, um, especially, but also all sat- all unsaturated fats in general, um, that kind of meal keeps you in what I call fat burning mode or fat releasing mode. Um, and so <laughs> there was a, there was a paper in that was referenced on hyperlipid. Um, it was a thesis by a woman named Valerie Reeves and she had fed mice this diet of um, it was like starch. And I think there might've been sugar and I'm not sure. And it was very high in something called stearic acid, which and all stearic acid is, is it's long chain saturated fat. Um, it's named after steers, which are male beef cows, right? Mm-hmm. That we eat for meat because beef fat is as fats go is relatively high in stearic acid. It's not the highest. Um, the highest things are cocoa butter and specifically the kidney fat of grass-fed beef. Um, there's a few other weird tropical oils out there, but those are the probably the single two best sort of commonly or sort of commonly available. It's not that hard, easy to find pastured beef suet or kidney fat. But um, anyway, um, in her thesis, she fed rats starch, sugar, and stearic acid, and they became very lean. Um, and this was interesting. This is inter- well, this is interesting for a lot of reasons. One is that every, you know, everybody in the keto community says the last thing that you want to do is combine. And this is sort of true on both sides. This is what the low carb community says. This is also what the low fat community says. This is the worst thing that you can do is combine uh, carbs with fat, right? Mm-hmm. That's what everybody says. Um, and yet, here are these mice and they're being fed carbs and fat and they're very lean. And this triggered, uh, this triggered a lot of things in my brain because as a chef and as a historian of food, I've always known that, you know, for instance, I use the French because people think about the French paradox. Right. Um, But really it's true of all of Europe. And it's also true of, of, uh, early U.S., um, you know, up until the even 1960s in the U.S., this was also true. Um, and it's true, in, it's true in places in Asia where, you know, the Himalayas are, is, a, is a dairying area. All of these regions where their, their diet is based on dairy fat and starch, the people tend to be very lean. And if you look at like, you know, there's a thread, there's a conversation thread that was started after I published the croissant diet on um, – on Reddit, it's uh, r slash saturated fat, and I was just on a thread last night talking about the um, the traditional diet, and somebody posted a bunch of photos of Americans in uh, around Washington D.C. I think from the fifties, and like you know, people are like gaunt, and mm-hmm. and I had posted data from the USDA from nineteen thirty nine showing that yes, Americans were absolutely eating butter and milk and cream and and flour and potatoes and sugar and they were eating them all together and everybody is like stick figures you know and these aren't these are people in the 40s 50s and 60s living in the city you know it's not like they're farmers it's not like they're out hoeing the crops every day right and so i've always had this kind of like cognitive dissonance i guess about my days doing keto and thinking that's the way to lose weight and yet knowing 
that the French are eating butter croissants and baguettes and cheese, and they also remain lean. And so as I was, as I was reading back through the, the hyperlipid thread, um, that's when I realized that this, this mechanism that Peter talks about in the protons thread could conceivably be the unifying mechanism that explains why, um, you know, the Chinese peasants eating a diet of 85% white rice are lean and people on a keto diet or a carnivore diet eating fatty beef are lean and the French eating, you know, butter croissants are lean. Um, if, you know, if Peter's protons thread is right, it actually can explain all three scenarios. And that's when I, I kind of had a eureka moment while reading his blog and thinking about all these things. When I sort of realized I was like, wow, this, this act, this theory actually can explain all of those scenarios. That's that to me was powerful because I, I couldn't think of any other (laughs) theories around obesity, right. That can explain all three cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what then led me to think I should try the diet that these mice are eating. (laughs) Um, And so that's, that was sort of the kernel of the idea for the croissant diet. Um, You know, I saw mice eating starch and highly saturated fat. And I said, I want to, I want to try that. And so I started literally baking these croissants and I bought commercial stearic acid, which you can buy. And I I sell a 90, like a 93% pure food grade stearic acid from my, uh, on my blog, Fire in a Bottle, now. Um, but, you know, uh, back then I was just, I was, you know, stearic acid is a funny thing. It's um, most fats, kind of how hard they are or how soft they are or how greasy they are mm-hmm. is determined by how unsaturated they are. So, you know, like uh, soybean oil is very unsaturated and it's a liquid even in the refrigerator. Um, you know, whereas beef fat, uh, or beef suet especially is like rock hard, even sitting out at room temperature. And so, you know, the more saturated the fat is, the harder it is. And so stearic acid has a melting point of like 170 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, which is to say that it's, it's basically like candle wax. And so I realized pretty quickly, I was like, this is, (laughs) I I probably can't just eat this. It's like literally wax. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what I started doing was I started blending it into butter. Um, and I would sort of put as much stearic acid in the butter as I could get away with until it basically started turning to wax in my mouth. And I started making croissants out of that. And I started eating those croissants. And immediately I, I found that they were really satiating, um, getting all that, all that stearic acid. Um, I started going kind of like longer and longer between meals and I started losing inches off my waist almost right away. I mean, it was, it was kind of like magic. The, you know, I did lose some pounds, but, but even more than pounds, I was losing inches, you know, I was losing abdominal fat, um, which was cool because, you know, that's what happened to the mice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was great, right? It was, uh, it was, it was kind of neat to have, to come up with a theory and then try it on yourself and it actually works, you know, you're like, okay. Um, so, so that was a cool experience. And, and, um, you know, and I, I published the croissant diet back in, 
I guess, last December. And, and it wasn't, you know, the first time I did it, it was not a highly controlled experiment. Um, I was just, you know, it was like, let's make these croissants and see what happens, <laughs> you know? So I didn't collect a ton of like metrics or anything. Um, since then, I've, I've tried to be more scientific about it. I did another dietary trial called the feasting mimicking diet, which was sort of a, an extension of some of the basic ideas about the croissant diet. And I took a lot more um, data about my weight loss and, um, and you know, blood sh blood glucose numbers over time and ketones and um and insulin what happened to my insulin levels while i was on the diet and and all of these things so um I, i'm you know i'm i'm trying to build more knowledge and sort of the backstory behind why all these things work and you know perhaps why they work right and um so yeah that's 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 kind of where i'm at and and um and as a sort of side note to that, as I've said, um, I'm a pig farmer. And I think one of the other things that I saw in the butcher shop was, um, you know, because I was raising the pigs and feeding the pigs. And then I was working with the pigs in the butcher shop. Uh, you know, I was just mentioning that saturated fats are firmer at room temperature mm -hmm. and I could really see in the butcher shop, the difference of what I fed the pigs, you know, how it changed the firmness of their fat. And so I found that, you know, new, more modern breeds of pigs that stay super lean, they never get firm fat. It just doesn't happen. But if you have good genetics, you have an old fashioned pig and you feed it, um, a very low fat grain, like barley was traditionally used to finish pigs in Europe in Canada because um, barley doesn't grow well in, or, or sorry, corn doesn't grow well in the North. And so in Europe, a lot of pork is grown in like Denmark and exported into Europe. Um, and those were the traditional grains. And so those, that uh, pork fat from Europe was known to be firm. It actually fetched a higher market rate. So American pork traditionally, um, you got like 30% less for it in a European market because they knew that it was going to be corn finished and it was going to be soft. And the reason that it's soft is that um, we feed it corn and corn is a lot oilier than barley. And so, um, you know, so, so pork in this country and also chicken even more especially is basically a Trojan horse for these polyunsaturated fats, um, this corn oil, this linoleic acid. Um, you know, most bacon and almost all chicken in the U.S. has more uh, linoleic acid than canola oil, right? And everybody's like, you know, people in the, in the keto community anyways are like, oh, we shouldn't eat seed oils, we shouldn't eat canola oil. And yet um, they're eating all of this bacon and, you know, the bacon might have just as much linoleic acid as the canola oil. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, it's just because of what we feed them. And so that's kind of my new, also my new project is uh, firebrandmeats.com where I'm making the, you know, lowest uh, polyunsaturated fat pork and bacon uh, that's going to be available anywhere. So that's, that's my other big project that I'm working on right now that I'm super excited about. And actually, um, I don't know when this podcast will be out, but uh, the first batch of pork is actually shipping in a little over a month so um 
so that's kind of been a long time coming. I've been working for maybe 18 months to actually make that happen. And so, nice. so it's very exciting that we're actually going to have products soon. Um, I'll have to put an order in. Yeah. Well, I, I, I definitely, all right, there's, there's a lot of different areas I want to roll up my sleeves and dive in here. Um, just for clarification here, the, the majority of my audience listening to this is going to associate insulin sensitivity with a good thing. Insulin resistance is a bad thing. You're talking specifically at the site that, adipocyte specifically the fat cell um so and that's you're you're wanting the 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 reactive oxygen species to signal to that fat cell to be insulin resistant so that you're not going to be subject to more fat gain and the linoleic acid let me clarify if i'm wrong here but the linoleic acid is what is contributing to that being insulin sensitive and harboring more adipose tissue correct exactly that's exactly right um, you know, specifically the mechanism for that is, is the generation of these, of these reactive oxygen species. Um, and so what they are, you know, they're, they're, uh, well, technically some of them are free radicals. Um, and so <laughs> it's, it's very briefly the mechanism by which this happens is so in the mitochondria, you have a um, what's called the electron transport chain, mm-hmm. and what happens is when you're metabolizing glucose, the electrons are carried to the electron transport chain by a molecule called NADH, and as the electrons move through the electron transport chain, um, a bunch of different things happen, ultimately resulting in the production of ATP, which is like stored chemical energy, and ATP is what your muscles, you know, actually run off of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so ATP is basically our main biological fuel, but we get it in, via um, the electron transport chain in the mitochondrial wall. And what happens is during there's a process called beta oxidation, and that's the process of of um, of breaking or oxidizing or metabolizing our fats uh, specifically. And so every time we do a round of beta oxidation, which is to say one molecule of stearic acid goes through nine rounds of this beta oxidation. Um, stearic acid has 18 carbons in it and like in a long chain. And every time you go through a cycle of beta oxidation, you're basically pulling off two of those carbons. And every time that happens, you create this other molecule, which is also just carrying electrons up to the electron transport chain, and that one is called FADH2. And so what happens is the NADH feeds its electrons into something called complex one, and the FADH2 feeds its electrons into something called complex two, and complex one and complex two both feed their electrons into complex three. So what happens is if you have a lot of electrons moving through complex one and you increase the amount of electrons coming through complex two, since they both have to make it through three, uh, what happens is you get a bottleneck effect. Um, You literally just overwhelm the ability of complex three to carry the electrons. And when that happens, they, you know, they ping back out of the, of complex one and they create something called superoxide, which is a free radical, right? And free radicals are scary right? As is insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of scary words, 
Um, and that's okay. <laughs> we actually uh, have something called superoxide dismutase, which is an enzyme. And it's really interesting. It's actually the fastest enzyme that we have ever discovered. Uh, it's probably the fastest enzyme in the world. And all it does is it changes superoxide dismutase into hydrogen peroxide. Or sorry, it changes superoxide into hydrogen peroxide. Um, and so very quickly, these free radicals get changed into hydrogen peroxide. And hydrogen peroxide is kind of cool because it, um, it is an oxidant. It's not nearly as reactive as something like superoxide, which is a, which is a free radical. The hydrogen, and the hydrogen peroxide is also unique in that it can diffuse through membranes. So superoxide is an ion. It's got this extra unpaired electron, which gives it a, a negative charge. And um, cell membranes are fat, you know, they're the phospholipid bilayer, they're made out of fat. And so mm -hmm. um, charged molecules can't get through. But hydrogen peroxide is actually neutral. It's H2O2. It has a neutral charge. And it's, it's, it's one of the only things that is water soluble, but it can also move through fat. So it's almost both water and fat soluble at the same time. And so that gives it the ability to actually diffuse out of the mitochondria and into the rest of the cell. And this is really interesting because, you know, if we look back evolutionary speak, evolutionarily speaking, what is a mitochondria? Well, at one point, a mitochondria was literally, it, we think, um, a bacteria. And at some point in time, a cell came along and engulfed the bacteria and tried to eat it, presumably, because that's how, like, an amoeba eats. You know, you think about an amoeba surrounding... Um, it's whatever the thing it's going to eat and it sucks it inside of itself and then it dumps digestive juices in there and it, and it, and it eats whatever, you know, the thing is, mm -hmm. but for, for some reason at some point in time, an amoeba like cell engulfed another cell and the other cell, instead of getting digested, just ended up living there, you know, stayed for good. Um, it's like the guy on the couch and that's, that's kind of what the mitochondria is. Um, and so, and so now you've got a, a system where you basically have one cell living inside of another larger cell and you know, the nucleus of that cell where the kind of the brains of the cell are, um, has to know what the mitochondria is doing, right? They have to have a way of talking back and forth. And so when the mitochondria is generating a lot of, um, superoxide and therefore generating a lot of hydrogen peroxide, that peroxide can diffuse out of the cell or out of the uh, mitochondria. It can go into the main part of the cell where it can activate things like transcription factors, which can then go into the nucleus and affect what uh, proteins and enzymes that the cell is making based on knowing what the mitochondria is doing. So the way that the nucleus of the cell knows that the cell is metabolizing fat is that the mitochondria is making these reactive oxygen species. But if you eat soybean oil um, and the mitochondria starts burning polyunsaturated fats, um, they don't make their reactive oxygen species anymore. And so now the nucleus of the cell no longer knows that the cell is burning fat. So you have this really ancient regulatory mechanism that is essentially broken if you eat too much linoleic acid. Um, 
it essentially disrupts the whole basic biology of the organism, right? Um, and there's an article in my blog. Uh, it's one of my favorite articles. Uh, nobody ever reads it, to be honest with you, but I think it's great. <laughs> it's called something like Two Elegant Experiments uh, that demonstrate that ROS is the signal. And one of them, I talk about C. elegans, which is a, a, a nematode, which is a little 24-cell worm, and it lives in the soil. And what it does is it, it cruises through the soil and it tries to find, um, it eats like things that plant roots exude. So it's looking for like little pockets of glucose that it can eat. And then when it finds glucose, it wants to reproduce because it's, you know, it's lived its life dream. It sort of found its, its happy home and it's going to, and it's going to then go on to create the next generation of, of C. elegans. And they only live about 18 days. Um, but if you, you know, in the lab, if you deprive them of glucose, they'll actually live longer. They'll live three or four more days, which is a long time if you only live 18 days. And so, um, and so the reason they do that is they're, they're, they think, okay, there's no glucose around. This is not a great place to reproduce. We should keep looking you know, for a better source of glucose before we reproduce and then die, right? Um, but what's really interesting about that is if you deprive them of glucose and at the same time give them uh, an antioxidant, they don't live the extra three or four days. So an antioxidant actually, um, in the presence of an antioxidant, they fail to respond to the fact that they're in a glucose poor environment because what happens to them when they're in a glucose poor environment, they're forced to live off their own body fats and they make ROS. Um, and when you give them antioxidants, the antioxidants soak up all that ROS. So the, the worms don't know that they're burning fat if you give them enough antioxidants and therefore they fail to do the to elicit the correct biological response to that uh stimulus so just, and so just to make sure I'm to me you, the to the, me uh, humans are the same okay humans are the same in that regard from like an evolutionary standpoint mm-hmm so right and so so humans and c elegans evolved at some point from the same common ancestor which was this presumably amoeba-like thing that engulfed this other um, organism, which became the mitochondria, right? And so way back when, a billion plus years ago, this relationship between the nucleus and the mitochondria was set up where, okay, the nucleus knows what the mitochondria is doing because the mitochondria is making these reactive oxygen species. And that's how they, you know, and that's how they communicate back and forth. Um, so, then so then that worked great for like you know one point whatever billion years right everything was working great um until humans started eating soybean oil <laughs> and then everything went haywire <laughs> that's <laughs> you know that's the um so the the hydrogen peroxide acts as a proxy and signals to the nucleus that hey we're burning fat all those good the, the linoleic acid soy from soybeans and stuff of that nature, sunflower oils, 
that's not going to elicit that response and you're not going to get that signal. And then the same is true with regard to like the, the nematodes, for instance, that are in the absence of glucose. But when you add that antioxidant, it's basically the same signal as what you're getting with the linoleic acid, correct? Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, well, it's, it's, it's essentially, it's, it's the lack of a signal, right? right? It's like the antioxidant is, is essentially eliminating the signal from the mitochondria to the nucleus, but also eating linoleic acid does the same thing. You know, it, it eliminates that signal because it doesn't create enough FADH2 and therefore the reactive oxygen species are just, just simply not produced in the first place. So from a human standpoint, there's going to be a lot of benefit to avoiding linoleic acid, obviously. What about antioxidants? Do antioxidants have a similar effect in humans as well? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I think that, um, I think that by, you know, consuming sort of pharmaceutical doses of antioxidants is, you're kind of playing with fire. And I mean that almost kind of literally, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, obviously my blog is called fire in a bottle with the idea being that, um, humans are, you know, we're oxidative, uh, vessels, I call it, but you know, we eat, we eat food, we eat, uh, carbon and hydrogen, and then we oxidize it down into, um, water and carbon dioxide. So, uh, in a sense, you know, it's a controlled version of fire. Um, obviously we see the, the, forest fires in California, right, are doing the same thing. They're also oxidizing carbon and hydrogen. That's what drives those fires. Um, in humans, we're doing the same thing, just in a more controlled fashion in our mitochondria. It's all just oxidation of, of hydrogen and carbon at the end of the day. Um, and so when I say that eating a bunch of antioxidants is playing with fire, I, I actually kind of mean that literally, you know. Um, if you're an organism that relies on oxidation to live, maybe you shouldn't eat things that are going to, you know, quench that fire. So, so that's, you know, that's from a high level perspective, but you can also see in that same article with the C. elegans on my blog, I talk about um, a trial where humans did um, young men, they did an exercise regime and one group took uh, I think it was vitamin C and vitamin E, a couple of, you know, easily available over-the-counter antioxidants. And the other group didn't take any antioxidant supplements. And then they both went through the same exercise regimen. And at the end of the exercise regimen, in the group that was taking the antibiotics, or sorry, antioxidants, uh, there was no measurable benefit to doing the exercise because you know, as I like to say, ROS is the signal. ROS is the signal to the body that you've exercised. And that's what causes your body to produce the, um, you know, the repairing enzymes and the, the catabolic hormones that are going to build up muscle and do all those things. It's, it's, it's the, the ROS themselves that are signaling to the body like, hey, we have to, you know, we got to kick it into high gear. Um, so if you do enough, if you take enough antibiotics, oxidants you can almost you can certainly eliminate some of the benefits of exercising just as a for instance there's been more um studies showing things like this i just the that's the one that i know the best <laughs> basically negating the hormetic effect of you know providing a stimulus to the body 
Exactly. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. I want to play devil's advocate with you here because I think I mean I'm a hundred percent on the same page with you, and that's people need to be prioritizing the 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 source of their macronutrients, the quality of those macronutrients, the micronutrients. You can't just look at it from a macro standpoint, like and put all fats in the same category. However, right. there's been a lot of people that have obviously lost a lot of weight with you know keto and low carb options that have not dug anywhere near this deep into the sourcing of their fats. They'll just eat you know a, a diet of bacon and cream cheese and they'll lose a lot of fats. What is the the caveat there? Sure. And so, you know, obviously, um, there are a lot of individual differences in people's biology and the signals that I'm talking about, right. Are not the only signals that control things like obesity and satiation. But, but I tend to think that they're important very low level signals that kind of underlie everything. And so, you know, I think some people, um, you know, there are other things that are involved such as leptin and there are, um, you know, there are these, um, uh, I'm spacing on the name, but your intestine makes this whole class of, of hormones that are released after a meal, like straight out of your intestine. And those can affect, um, your level of, of satiety, um, and so, so this, you know, it's a complicated thing and obviously not every, obviously if you look at a hundred Americans that are all eating the quote standard American diet, they're not all fat, you know, maybe mm-hmm. 40% or half of them are, but some of them stay quite lean on it. So, you know, I'm not trying to suggest this is right. The only thing that's happening, but, um, recently I was contacted and I, and I have her story on my blog uh, called Emmy's story. But so Emmy is a woman who reached out to me over Twitter. Um, I'm fire underscore bottle on Twitter if anyone wants to follow along. Um, and she said, hey, uh, you know, I read your blog a couple of months ago and I was, I was interested. She said, I've been doing keto and carnivore uh, various versions. And she was for about six years now. Um, she's a postmenopausal woman and, you know, she had gained weight. She wasn't tremendously heavy or anything, but, but she was, you know, significantly over the weight that she wanted to be at. And she said, I've tried everything. She said, I went strict carnivore for two years and I didn't lose a pound, um, or a kilogram in her words, cause she's European. Um, and so she said, I read your blog and I made some changes and she eliminated like the chicken and the pork fat. And she switched over to using a blend of butter and, um, and, and cocoa butter, uh, which is very high in stearic acid. And she said when she made that change of switching her fats, she started to lose weight. And she said at first it was just grams per day, like very tiny amounts. Um, but then she said after she had done it for about three months, uh, her weight loss actually started to accelerate. And she said she lost, I think she said a kilo and a half in, in a week. Um, for Americans, that's about three pounds. Um, and <laughs> she very quickly hit her, well, you know, after three months of this very gradual weight loss, which she said she had actually literally never seen on any other diet, all of a sudden the weight loss accelerated, which is kind of exactly what I would predict because, you know, one of the things 
you know, if this theory is right, one of the things we're battling is our stored body fats. And so, you know, when you think about a mitochondria, it's burning some fat that's dietary fat from your last meal that's still sort of in circulation, but it's also burning a lot of your stored body fat. So if you've been eating, you know, in her case, probably bacon and chicken fat, you know, you're going to have a lot of those stored polyunsaturated fats. And so, uh, you know, in her case, it seems like that was the thing that allowed her to, you know, get off of that weight loss plateau and actually start losing weight was to change the the type of the fats. And so, sure, I mean, in my 20s, I didn't know any of this. You know, I lost weight um, eating, you know, like whatever, eating chicken chicken fat. And I was making – I remember doing Atkins and having uh, fried chicken – fried in soybean oil. Mm-hmm. And as a 25-year-old, I could lose weight that way. As a 45-year-old, I know that I can't. You know? And so, uh, so I think we're all different. I think things change over time. And I just think it's, I think it's, I think it's a, a, a topic that people haven't realized you know, what I think are the very real effects it can have on, on your sort of overall energy balance as an at the sort of organismal level like this fact this this question of are your fat cells actively releasing fat for the rest of the body to consume you know that i think that gets at the core question um there's another question about satiation you know another place that your body recognizes these reactive oxygen species is in your hypothalamus which is in the brain and the hypothalamus is kind of the thing that that sends the satiety signal to your brain and one of the things that it's definitely monitoring is ros production um you know there's this article in my blog i think it's called ros is satiation and this is an area that i want to i'm definitely going to do a further dive into the into the you know the literature on this i haven't had the time to do it yet but um it's pretty clear that that the production of these reactive oxygen species when you're burning saturated fat is you know intimately linked to the the satiation signal um it's not to say that there's you know there may be other uh hormonal signals that can give you satiation even without those ros but it's a heck of a lot easier to get it with them um and so i kind of see that as the two you know the two primary mechanisms i'm talking about are basically one is satiation and two is allowing your fat cells to continue to release their their cargo for the rest of the body to consume. I think, I mean, I, I'm totally on board with this. I think it makes a lot of sense, and I feel like it makes this type of dietary protocol much more sustainable and healthy. Because when you look at all the different dieting protocols out there, there there's a myriad of factors that could be contributing to weight gain or weight loss. And, you know, I, I've seen, I've done all these different diets and I've had a lot of luck with keto, but the the thing I like about what you're philosophizing here is that it really puts a significance on the source of those foods, the source of those macros. And I feel like that's definitely next level and a place where people should strive to, to prioritize because, you know, taking in a bunch of polyunsaturated fats just simply to get your fat macros up for the day is just not a smart way to go about it. I mean, if you're prioritizing foods that are very high in stearic acid, very low in linoleic acid, then you're going to get food that's been fed a better quality diet to begin with, and your health is going to benefit as a result. Right. And and so, you know, and I've gone so far, and if you read like the croissant diet protocol, 
Um, I'm also questioning the logic of eating, you know, and these are things that are sort of condoned, I think, by the ketogenic community. Um, things like uh, olive oil and avocado oil. And also, like I say, chicken fat and pork fat, right? Like these things are all uh, have, you know, as a reference point, um, I think that canola oil is around 15% polyunsaturated fat and a lot of the rest is monounsaturated fat. Well, that's very similar to olive oil and avocado oil. The olive oil and the avocado oil are a little less unsaturated, but not that much. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm just saying like, yes, I think like we need to think about this um, think about all these different sources and maybe, and so I say in the, on the croissant diet, I say, yeah, don't eat olive oil. Don't eat avocado oil. Don't eat nuts. Don't eat chicken fat and don't eat, you know, bacon from pigs that are finished on corn and maybe even, you know, another thing, a lot of things changed to, to make our, like, especially our pork different from our historical pork because you know back in the day we had basically heritage breeds of pigs those pigs were able to make their own fat uh, animals can only make saturated and monounsaturated fat they can't make polyunsaturated fat and so old-fashioned pigs you know you'd feed them their whole job was to turn starch into saturated fat basically mm -hmm. um and then in the 90s we changed the genetics of the pigs and and what what it turns out you know to make uh, quote, the other white meat, right? To make this really lean type of, of pork. And what happened when we did that is they actually lost their ability to do de novo lipogenesis, which means to make their own fat. And so they're forced to actually get the fat from their diet. And when you feed them corn, the fat that you're feeding them is very polyunsaturated. And so, you know, the modern lean pigs, that's why the fat never gets firm because they're forced to get fat from their diet. Then you combine that with in the early 2000s, we built the ethanol industry in the upper Midwest where we take literally 30 to 40% of the U.S. corn crop and we're turning it into ethanol, which, you know, goes into our gasoline, right? And, and the, the ethanol is made from the starch in the corn. And what happens when you remove the starch, you're actually concentrating the oil, right? The oil is what's left over. Mm -hmm. And then they have this feed called dry distiller's grain, like DDGS, they call it. And so... So then that gets fed back to the pigs, but that's way oilier than the corn started out. And so you have all these pigs in the upper Midwest being fed corn and distillers grains. And that makes a really uh, high linoleic acid lard. Um, someone told me recently that, that a lot of plants in the Midwest were actually removing some of the oil from those dry distiller grains before they feed them back to the pigs. But I don't know, you know, it's hard to know, right? The extent to which that's true. Um, if you check back in at Fire in a Bottle and or um, uh, Firebrand Meats, when I get my first round of, of pork, I'm going to do a whole like bacon buyer's guide and I'm going to take my nice firm bacon and my nice firm pork fat and compare it to some other, you know, samples from supermarket pigs and and uh, some other producers and just so you can really see the difference between what I'm talking about as, you know, as the pork fat becomes uh, more saturated and less polyunsaturated. Um, 
you can once you know what to look for, you can actually tell, like in a, in just a second. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's, wow. it's interesting because like I've always grown up on the farm. I mean, I'm I'm in Arkansas here. We got land, and we've always just homesteaded basically. And you know, we we used to raise chickens, and the the quality of the chicken fat between chickens that we've raised and we're like carnivorous chickens basically eating grasshoppers versus that which you buy in a supermarket. I mean, it's it's a night and day difference. There's no comparison. Absolutely. Well, and and so we have this thing in the U.S. where, you know, all of the, you know, it's very much a group think thing. It's like all of the livestock nutritionists, you know, basically went to Ohio State or, you know, maybe Illinois, and and they're all taught that well, chickens grow fastest if you supplement their feed with five uh, percent soybean oil, and so they think, oh, well, we have to feed pigs or we have to feed chickens this supplemental soybean oil on top of the oil that's already in the corn, right? And so almost every broiler chicken in the U.S. is fed 5% supplemental soybean oil on top of whatever ration that they're given, which is almost always corn and soy to start with. And then just some extra soybean oil on the top just to get them to market three days faster. And unfortunately, that's true whether or not the ration is commercial or organic or non-gmo because all of the you know even if you're an organic feed mill you're still going to call the nutritionist for ohio state and they're going to say yeah well you have to put five percent soybean oil in it Mm -hmm. um and so this is a really really widespread problem and it's it's literally only because you know the universities have decided that yes all chicken feed needs to have five five percent supplemental soybean oil and it's like it's a frustrating problem for me because I you can't get feed mills to like make you feed that doesn't have extra vegetable oil in it. Yeah, it's so it's insane when you stop and think about what they're mandating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. So I want to I want to pick your brain about um, there's there's a lot of things I want to pick your brain about still. So the steric acid I want to dive a little bit deeper into that because I, that has got a, a personal interest in mind because. I make a product. Um, it's called the Keto Brick. It's a thousand calorie Keto Brick, and it's got its its primary ingredient is cacao butter. So cacao butter mm. is the highest, most concentrated source of stearic acid, followed closely by beef suet. Correct. Right. So your theory basically implies that when you're looking at the monounsaturated fat versus a uh, or when you're looking at a saturated fat versus a mono or a poly unsaturated fat you're going to have a much more efficient process in losing adipose tissue and just having a a more free fatty acid from an energy source in which you can tap into uh, than its counterparts and you're going to be getting that um, in whether it's the cacao butter the the beef suets any of these products and that's just going to be significantly amplified versus what you're getting from any other source of dietary fat uh, which is going to yield, as a for me as a bodybuilder, a favorable outcome in my ability to lose more body fat much more efficiently than any other fat source. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's exactly right. And and you know, of course, you know, the theory boils down to what is the FADH two to NADH ratio of. Um, of the final fat mix, right? And so 
okay, well, what, what factors affect that? The longer in chain length the fats are, at least up to 18 carbons, uh, longer chain fats go to peroxisomes, and that's a whole different ballgame. So as long as the, the, the fat is 18 carbons in length or shorter, um, it's going to go into the mitochondria. And every, you know, every time it becomes two carbons longer, you're producing another FADH2, which is to say you're increasing the FADH2 to NADH ratio. So stearic acid and 18 carbon length fat is going to make one more FADH2 than is palmitic acid, which is a 16 chain length saturated fat. Every time that you add a single uh, double bond, which is to say an unsaturated bond, you're also removing an FADH2. So oleic acid is the same thing as stearic acid, uh, oleic acid is the uh, primary uh, component of olive oil. You can tell it's the same root word, right? Mm-hmm. Olive and oleic. Um, so it's named after olives. And it's basically like stearic acid, except it has a single double bond. And that means that it produces one less FADH2. And then linoleic, again, you see the oleic. Um, it's not really from olives, but I think it's, I don't know, probably has the same root at some point. Um that has two double bonds. And so now linoleic acid produces two less FADH2 than does stearic acid. And so, you know, at and the end of the day, FADH2 the amount of ROS that you generate is based on uh, how many FADH2 you produce compared to NADH. Um, and so either by, you know, so it's really about ratios, right? It's like if, if as you add linoleic acid you're removing fadh2s as you add stearic acid you're adding fadh2 and what you want to do is kind of maximize the fadh2 so it's it's you know it's about the final blend right it's like about the final octane of the blend but anything but but cocoa butter is great because it it's very low in linoleic acid it's relatively low in uh, monounsaturated fat and it's very high in stearic acid and in palmitic acid so it's very high in the two long chain saturated fats and fairly low in the unsaturated fats and especially low in linoleic acid. And that's, you know, that's a perfect blend, you know, all, all fats, essentially every fat that you've ever eaten is a blend of stearic acid and palmitic acid and oleic acid, um, and linoleic acid. Uh, that's true of, that's true of soybean oil. It's true of beef tallow. It's true of cocoa butter. It's true of everything, right? So they all, every fat has all of the different fats. It's just a question of how much of the different ones they have. Um, again, I've got an article, if people want to dig into this, called the How's, Why's, Where's, and Fats on my, on my blog, Fire in a Bottle, and it really goes into all the different fats and their melting points and why they're that way and where you find them and all that kinds of good stuff. But um, And the longer yeah, the, the chain preferably a double chain that's going to have a greater contribution to the FADH2, which is going to yield the the signaling that you're wanting for releasing that stored adipose tissue. Exactly. What, what yes. uh, does, does carbohydrates and protein have an effect on FADH2? What's their, is there a signaling effect happening there? So, car- right. So, um, no. Well, it's complicated, but probably not. And I'll, and I'll tell you why I think that. And this is an area that I need to do more research on. Um, 
But essentially, most cells, most of the time, there's a thing called the Randall cycle. And basically what the Randall cycle uh, is, is it's, it's sort of a feedback loop of when cells are burning a lot of fat, they, are, they make less of the things that cause them to import and burn glucose and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So all your different tissues are going to be in some on one end or the other most of the time of this Randall cycle, which means that they're either going to be in glucose burning mode or they're going to be in fat burning mode. So glucose has a very low FADH2 to NADH ratio. Glucose does not generate significant amounts of, um, of ROS. And that's, and that's fine because what happens is when a cell's burning glucose, it will switch via this Randall cycle um, to glucose burning mode and it will make all of the, all of the proteins and all the cofactors, um, you know, to burn glucose well and to burn glucose efficiently. Right. And there's benefits to burning glucose. Um, as a performance athlete, you probably know that, right. There's sometimes when you're, uh, if you're sprinting, your muscle cells want to burn glucose. Um, it's a very efficient way to go. And, and then the flip side, the cells that are burning fat, and adipose tissues like to burn fat, right? They're fat cells. And so in those cells, when they're burning fat, which ideally they should be after meals, um, they're not going to be burning a lot of glucose because of, you know, they're going to basically readjust themselves. So they're just burning fat. And so, um, so I don't believe that, you know, the low FADH2 to NADH ratio of glucose is necessarily going to affect this phenomenon. Um, you know, because most cells, most of the time are not going to be burning glucose and fat at the same time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Totally different physiological response then. Mm-hmm. Well, Brett, I can literally sit here and talk to you all day. I've got like said millions of questions, man, but it's, we're now we're in, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, but I, I want to get you back on if time permits at some point to talk about your, your feasting, uh, diet philosophy. I want to talk about wine. I want to talk about how to cook the perfect liverwurst. There's all kinds of things I want to talk about. <laughs> so let's do a follow-up <laughs> sure, round totally. too. Man. Well, I've got a real. I'm, I'm. I'm. I got a couple of really interesting things on the back burner. I'm working on too. So there'll be lots of fun things we can talk about in the future. Yeah, I'm really excited about what you're doing um, with with the meat uh, to just minimize any linoleic acid in there, make it as as low a count quantity as possible. Um, and you said that's launching in about a month. That is launching. Yeah. So the first, right. So, so the way that program works, it's kind of like what I call it a CSA share, which means community supported agriculture. And the idea is people who really like your product, you know, they sign up for kind of a subscription, like a regular, um, you know, and so in this one, basically you can sign up to get a box every month or a box every other month. And you basically pay like a month up front. And that helps me get, um, you know, startup capital, to raise the pigs in the first place and pay all the processing costs because there's a ton of costs up front when you're doing meat. Meat is not a high margin. Mm-hmm. It's not a high margin thing to produce. Ton of upfront costs. It's a tough, it's a tough game all around. <laughs> I've done it a long time. <laughs> and so um, so this CSA model though, it just allows me to kind of like to get enough pigs uh, raised fast enough that we can do it um, that makes it at least modestly affordable. Um, and, and, but it's going to be great stuff. It's, uh, it's Berkshire pigs, which make some of the best, like highly marbled, deep red pork, um, 
nice firm back fat. They make a lot of saturated fat. And like I say, we're not feeding them any, um, well, okay. It's literally impossible to feed them zero linoleic acid, but they're getting very little. I think the whole fat content of their diet is like 1.3% total fat. That's not linoleic acid fat. So this is, this is a really, really, really low fat pig uh, diet that we've developed and they, they grow a little slower that way. Um, you know, without feeding them the, the soybean oil, but I think that's going to make a better quality meat. I think, um, I just, I can't wait. Um, the first group of 20 pigs, that was our small batch that we did to start with. Those are, those are sold out at this point, but we're going to, we're going to try to start making like 40 a month. Um, so those should be ready, you know, maybe in January or February, we're going to start having a lot more shares available. So, uh, people can sign up at, uh, firebrand meats, dot com um uh and you know uh fire in a bottle if people want to play around with stearic acid um and that's fireinabottle.net right that's fireinabottle.net that's right and if you google for fire in a bottle or if you google for the croissant diet it'll come right up and we've got that and we're we're selling the um the the stearic acid enhanced butter oil that I use to make their croissants as well. So if anybody wants to try any of this stuff, uh, they can get it. And um, and yeah, I'm just really excited that the the pigs are going to be. I actually spent most of my day doing logistics around Firebrand Meats and making sure that I've got the slaughterhouse and the meat cutter and the bacon guy and all the transport guys all lined up. There's an incredible amount of logistics required to run a meat business so it's it's it's, uh, it's an endeavor <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> it's a lot man. more exciting than yeah yeah it's, it's, uh, I'm <laughs> acid is a great product but it's it's, it's you know it's like it, it's simple in a way as a as a meat guy i'm used to i'm used to life being like very complicated because i'm used to like sitting and waiting for like the other shoe to drop and like what's going to go wrong next what's going to break what the truck's going to break down the pigs are going to be stuck on the road the i can't tell you the number of disasters that i've dealt with in the last 50 years running the the butcher shop and the restaurant and the meat processing facility it's like the usda is going to shut us down the there's so many things that can go wrong all of the time And, uh, you know, the machinery is going to break the, there's going to be a snowstorm. We can't get the truck on the road. You, you know, it goes the, the list of the list of ways that running a meat business, uh, you can get hosed is, is endless, um, and fascinating. So I, we could do a whole, we could probably do several episodes about foibles of being a meat farmer, but, um, uh, we'll, we'll have to save those for next time. But uh, anyways, I guess, uh, why do I go into that? Uh, mostly because it's funny. No, it's but, awesome, man. Like, I, uh, I love business. <laughs> You've got all kinds of but, stories. So that, that's a that's a whole other podcast and a half right there. Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, no, I'm super excited. Uh, yeah, the pigs are going to be uh, shipping, I believe, the first week in December is going to be the very first Firebrand meat shipment ever and then after that we're just gonna try to keep keep building it awesome brad well i will definitely support you in any way i can i'll i'll put my name in the hat for an order and um i can't wait to give it a shot man excellent and if i could just plug a couple other things i know i already said it but just to reiterate uh if people want to follow me on twitter uh, it's fire underscore bottle um 
I also have a Facebook page and an Instagram that I keep saying I'm going to spend more time updating and never seem to quite get to. But if you're an Instagram or a Facebook person, you can follow me there too. And maybe someday I'll, I'll get my act together. And um, there's a great discussion group about all this stuff, the stearic acid, etc., on Reddit under the r uh, saturated r slash saturated fat subreddit. So that's another really good place to to follow along and contribute your own stories to this. Well, I'm I'm definitely topic. diving into the stearic acid a lot right now. So I will most certainly be be reaching out again in the future and picking your brain further. Nice, I love it. Well, I appreciate it, Brad. Until then, man, you have a good one and keep killing it. Yeah, you too, man. Take Thank care. you.